Hello, I'm Ben Demora, and this is FinOps Pod. Hey, this is Stacey Case. And this is Noel Crowley. And this is FinOps Pod. So tell me, Stacey, what do you think that this FinOps pod is going to be, or where do you think we should be going with it? That's a great question, because I think we got a lot of feedback from the last one. And I think what I like most about this is we're touching on FinOps, but it's not just that. It's the people that have done FinOps that are doing FinOps and who they are as a person. It's showing that nice balance of this is FinOps, but hey, here's the journey of the person's doing FinOps and also some really cool, fun, personal things of those people as well. That's what I'm enjoying about this. The things that we're learning about the people. We all know that person A and person B is good at doing this, that, and the other, mm-hmm. and they do presentations all over the world. But actually learning about the person behind that. Exactly. And them and what makes them tick. That's what I like. It's building okay. the community. Building exactly. Community. I was just going to say that. It's building the community and learning about the community. So... I love this. I love this. And I hope that we continue to have these amazing interviews. Hey, Noel, I'm so excited to talk to you today, but I'm even more excited to hear who you interviewed for this edition of FinOps Pod. Who was it? For today, we had the privilege of interviewing the newest member of the FinOps Foundation staff, uh, Ben Demora. Yeah, I've actually worked with Ben pretty much since I started with the foundation because he's been an instructor and he was my go-to to lead some of the FinOps certified practitioner training. I think he might've been one of our first certified instructors as well. And we talked to him about his interests, his hobbies, and some of the things you might not know about Ben. Oh yeah. There's a lot I don't know about Ben, <laughs> but I'm excited to listen to this, especially when he starts talking about how he got into the FinOps Foundation in helping out with the instruction of it, but also where did he come from and um, and how did he actually get into FinOps in general? Yeah, during the interview, we kind of go where his job was, where he was coming from and what, why he changed into this new role of advisory and training of people. He took us on a journey that is different to a lot of other FinOps people. Little Birdie told me there's kind of something special at the very end of the interview. One of the things that I really enjoyed about when I was talking to Ben is that what you see is not what you are getting. There is a person there with a whole journey on skills and talents. And sometimes he's learning more. Sometimes he's learning. He's playing with six strings and sometimes he's not. Sometimes he's playing with four. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, I can't wait to listen to it and hear the interview with Ben that you and Joe did. Before we move on to that interview, for everybody to listen to, I just want to say one thing. We do have FinOps X coming up. This is our first in-person conference. This is going to be in Austin, Texas, June 20th to 21st. Registration it will be open by the time this podcast goes live. And you can go to x.finops.org to register and learn more about it. All right. So let's get on to the interview. We never actually talked about how we would do this, you know, how we interview you, because in fairness, Joe and I, when we talked, I think a part of this, we'd have a conversation and see how it goes. Right. Right. And that's, that's, what's going to make this natural and fun and everything else. And I, I'll be honest with you, like you were the first name that came to my head, Ben. Wow. Part of the reason for that was a couple of weeks ago, you said something, you've done over 200 hours of training 
last year? 200 people, actually. 200 was people. it people? Okay. Yeah. That's, that's even better. So first question, if you trained 200 people, was it an hour each? <laughs> no, it was not an hour each. No, it was not. It was 10 hours. Uh, and it was in groups of about 30 or 40 at a time, uh, sometimes a few less, but effectively it was the, it was a FinOps practitioner course. It was the uh, two five hour block sessions in two days in a row doing the FinOps practitioner training course. I actually helped you on one of those. You did. You may or may not remember that. I do um, actually. And I didn't do well on it. I discovered that while I love talking FinOps, I'm perhaps not the best trainer in the world. And I, I remember listening to your stories and when you were talking, like you were such a natural and someone who really enjoyed this space as well. Powerful stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think it helps that I've never had any formal training in teaching. It's just to just make it up as I go, right? And it seems to work. I don't agree with you there because I looked at your profiles, I looked yeah. you up online and stuff and you, you coach under eights and under nines rugby. Or I used to, yeah. Used to, I yeah. Was, as a coach for a while, I started doing that when I was, I was coaching my middle child, Toby, who is just a rugby genius, strategy genius. And he was really awesome to teach, to coach. He's actually ASD, he's a neurodivergent. So he has some challenges as well with that. Would you overcame through rugby as, as he was growing up? Coaching his, him and his team, it was just the most wonderful thing to do. It was great fun. And then my younger child, Joseph, got old enough to start playing rugby. Joe asked me to coach his team instead, so I switched and I was coaching the little like uh, P4, they call it in Scotland, which is like age like seven, eight, nine, and just coaching a bunch of kids at that age to play a game as structured and as, as disciplined as rugby is kind of like trying to herd cats. You have to, you have to just abandon all hope of any actual play and just embrace the chaos and get them to run in the right direction whilst holding the ball. It's, it's great fun. I, I, I coached a small bit myself at that level. And the one thing I really enjoyed about it at that level versus other sports where I'd been involved in is you teach them very early about the laws of the game, yeah. respecting the referee, respecting yeah. the other team. As it's different in other codes. I'm an ex-player as well. I was a forward. I was, I was a number seven, a flanker. And yeah, the referee is sir on a rugby pitch. That's the way that works. Oh yeah. I was one of the good looking guys. I was a back. I was a scrum half. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, okay. You were the so, quick one. Yeah. I was the one that, you know, controlled all this. I was telling him where to go and play basically. Yeah. yeah. I was, I was the, I was the violent idiot. That was basically my job on the pitch. <laughs> all right. I don't know anything you're saying, but let me ask you this. <laughs> Sorry, Joe, I'll teach you soon, mate. Ben, which group is easier to train and coach and instruct mm. eight-year-old rugby players or FinOps practitioners? Ooh, eight-year-old rugby players. <laughs> less they better listeners less opinionated and the, the chaos is to be embraced no i'm kidding it varies every time so I've, I've taught quite a few of these practitioner courses now and i don't think any two have been the same i don't think any two have had the same kinds of conversations things evolve all the time things are involving with finops as a discipline with the experiences people are having with the maturity that people are com coming to cloud with and sort of you know, getting to that point with concerns are changing as well. So the conversations are different in every single course I've taught so far. The kinds of people, the representation that you get coming to the course is different every single time. So you might have a couple of CEOs and CFOs on one course, right? And we've had, I think we had one course with like five CEOs and it. it was weird. The conversations were fascinating. And we, we might have another course where there's 
like 12 of the people on the course are engineers, right? And they have a deeply technical conversation about like workload automation and management and all this cool stuff. So I learn loads every time I run that course. It's for me, I'm kind of keeping up a lot of the time, right? I'm trying to figure out and trying to get one one page ahead in the manual before the folks that are on the call and trying to you know, keep ahead of what they're talking about, which is fun. It's, it's almost definite... like you don't know which team's going to show up. Yeah, you really don't know. Like, for, for start of the course is like people introduce themselves and I'm making a little note. I'm like, right, CO1, CO2, engineer, finance person, project manager, cool. And kind mm-hmm. of going down that list, right? But this is this is kind of what is, when you, you know, coaching rugby, everybody goes there to play rugby and they're all like, yeah, fairly good idea of what that's going to be. I'm going to carry a ball. I'm going to knock people over. It's going to be great. We get covered in mud. Brilliant. Go to a FinOps course and some people come to that with a goal of understanding how to do all the usage optimization stuff and all the engineering clever, clever awesome stuff. Some people come to it with this one single goal of how do I make my bill less? Other people come to it and like, I want to realize what the actual value of this is and how do I get there, right? So there's loads of different priorities and loads of different sort of uh, focuses from one single conversation. And and that does lead to the similar level of chaos to a bunch of eight-year-olds on a rugby pitch with a ball sometimes. But yeah, you kind of have to encourage the chaos a little bit and then direct it, shape it. Noel, when you volunteered and, and worked in a training, uh, do you remember what sort of the audience was and what the conversations were like? So I remember it being... And I did a couple of them. I think I did, I probably did some of the first online. So back in 2020, when they first went online and it was always an interesting mix of people because it was a very new discipline then. Mm. And I, I never, I don't think we ever had any CEO type people on it. We definitely had some, I guess what I would call people who were responsible for a portfolio of applications. Who didn't have an in-depth technical knowledge. They were just trying to understand what was going on underneath them. There was a couple of very finance-driven people. I remember being in some of my some of the ones I did at the very start. Very, very finance-driven people, as in like pure accountants, where they wanted to purchase reservations all up front so they knew that they owned them, not convertible, so they could get tax credits or write them off for tax and do all mad things in that sense. So like just multiple opportunities to, to save. And they were the kind of people that were there. And some of the FinOps stuff didn't bother them because their whole logic on saving money was, hey, you have a budget, don't go over it. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the challenging points, right? How do you know what changes are going to occur in terms of engineering or roadmaps, whatever? or your customer demand levels or the cloud service provider itself. Maybe they're going to change their prices. It's much more fluid than, than the, the traditional to IT models. Can I ask you a question on that now? It, it, mm. It's a little bit sort of tangential to that is. You said you see sometimes you get a lot of technical people and, and I found back when I did the training, like it was a long time ago, mm. different, different mindset, different ops is new. But now today, the people coming to it And you said there was some really good technical engineering people you'd have on some courses. Do you find that, is there many architects coming? And if they are coming, do they still have the mindset of, I'm architecting and I'm going to use an Americanism here, but really for that Super Bowl ad that plays once a year, that's Mm. going to generate maximum traffic to their website. Do they still architect with that mindset? Or are you finding 
they're coming because they want to learn about other ways to do things. Both, right? Bit of both. I mean, you, you're always going to get the architect who wants to use every single complicated shiny toy in the box, right? And I, I came from a data center engineering world where uh, I've encountered projects where there, there's been an architect where I had to put something like 360 separate pieces of, of Cat6 copper between two racks because that was the level of interconnect between the devices in the racks this architect had designed and he'd done it with like 25 different types of, of, of solution of system in each rack and it was insane it was the most complicated thing in the world but then there was a far simpler way of doing what they were trying to do effectively it was a vpn endpoint right it does not need that much of much complexity but it, it had it because he wanted to play with all the toys that were there and available to them right and you still get that now because in fact in fact worse now because cloud is, you've got so many different products that you can choose from on the shelf now that you're kind of spoiled for choice. And for an architect to go, wow, I'm going to play with all these things because I've been given a remit to build a big thing. I'm going to build a big thing with all the bells and whistles, which can be useful, but it can distract from the actual point, which is what are you doing? What are you here for? What are you doing with this system, right? You're trying to produce a service for a customer that is performant, res resilient, scalable, and cost-effective? And are you able to prove that it's cost-effective? Do you really need all of these things, right? So yeah, you get the architects that want to play with all the shiny things, but you also get the architects who understand that this ultimately is a business that needs to operate. This is a, this is a business delivery piece. And as a result, we have to basically justify the benefit of every dollar we spend on this infrastructure because we don't own any of it. It's all, it's all consumption-based stuff. So. We're consuming this thing. Does it does it give us anything to consume that thing, or is it just a, a just in case or a nice to have? Is it a cherry on the top that we don't really need? Nobody will notice if it's not there. It's that yeah. different mindset. We see both mm -hmm. at the moment. It's interesting as when I I just left the practitioner world, and one of the last conversations I had was with an architect who was getting mad at me because I wouldn't let them include a three year all upfront reserved instance in their architecture. Mm -hmm. And I kept saying reserved instances is not an architecture. No, it's it, not. It's, it, it's a, it's a discount method. Really got to know how can he put that in as an architecture? My head says, no problem. I, I, I even talk to people who are going, take into account our EDP and savings plans mm -hmm. when you're putting how much it's going to cost. Yeah. But how would you write that as an? It's, architecture. it's strange, isn't it? An RI or a savings plan, they're not actual things, are they? No. They're, they're billing mechanisms. Right. Well, and so this is where our my team started becoming more architecture-based is because mm. we would always say, well, what is the financial impact of this solution you've delivered? And they'd be like, here's what it is. Here's what it is based on our common rate that we, that we get for our company. And they'd be like, well, no, 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 this is overstated. And I'm like, well, it's all an estimate at this point because nothing's been built. Like, no, no, you're not doing the three-year upfront. I'm like, no, no, discounting methods shouldn't be part of what drive the architecture. I remember one, one solution was just seemed wildly, wildly expensive. This was being built in AWS. So it was all mm -hmm. EC2 based. I'm like, well, this, you could just replace this entire corner of the architecture with the Athena service. And then everyone looks at the FinOps person and you're like, oh. <laughs> and, and, and the architect's giving you a dirty look and you just start drawing and that's how the FinOps starts playing into the architecture world. I, I know we're seeing more 
I review the membership applications at the FinOps Foundation. So I'm, I'm really happy to see more architects, people with the title architects coming through. So I hope they start headed, heading towards your training, Ben. Brilliant. I'm looking forward to seeing them. Can I go back to something you said a few minutes ago, Ben? You, you were uh, an engineer, I think you said, in, in a massive data center. And the question I want to ask you is today, are you now a poacher turned gamekeeper? As in FinOps practitioner or FinOps trainer now? Do you mean in terms of moving away from the data center towards the cloud and that kind of thing? Well, going more so from building, creating, making stuff, right? Yeah. As an engineer, right? Yeah. And now you're the FinOps guy who is, is going back to these engineers going, actually try and do it differently. That do you know don't what? do it the way you've always done it, you know? I mean, I've, I've actually, funnily enough, throughout my whole career, I've kind of had a focus on resource efficiency within compute. So, I mean, going way back to like when I was an intern, one of my major projects as an intern, which was way back in the early, like very early 2000s, was with uh, Sun Microsystems. And we were doing a huge program to do server consolidations. Back at, the, back at that time, we, used, we were using Unix uh, jails as a concept, a Unix concept, which basically a bit like it was a Cheroot, it's called a Cheroot jail. It's a bit like a virtual machine, but way less effective. We were using these things to consolidate different workloads onto one server. This was something that was happening, what, 20 odd years ago, thereabouts. And going forward, most of the work that I was doing with in their data centers was around building internal private clouds using virtualization, Zen hypervisor virtualization layers and consolidating lots of disparate systems across various small satellite data centers into our virtual cloud offering that I built within the data center in Lithgow in Scotland, which is kind of where I am now. The, the, the consolidation of all this stuff into these virtual private clouds and that kind of thing, it's kind of been a thread through my whole career has been, how do we maximize the benefit? How do we maximize usage of this resource that we've got? In the data center, you can't really easily resize a server without a Dremel and then you get told off for doing it. But you know, if you're if, you're, if you've got a, an amount of compute, you want to make sure that very little of that compute is just sat there doing nothing because ultimately it's occupying space and power in the data center and it's, a, it's a, an investment. I don't feel like I've gone the other direction. It's just a continuation and evolution of what I've always been doing. And actually, the fact that I'm now able to do this with incredible amounts of data analytics with cloud that I could never do before. And we can do it in a way that allows us to be much more efficient than we could ever be before, really. I think is is kind of an awesome progression. So it's, it's to me, it's a natural natural flow. Okay, I'm going to follow up that question with. Okay. You just said they're more efficiently. Yeah. Amazon released their sustainability pillar to their yep. well architected framework reinvent 2021. Yep. This week they released the carbon footprint report into into AWS. Do you think? that sustainability will play into future uh, FinOps movements. I have I my opinion, interested in yours. Yeah, I think that the two are intrinsically linked because ultimately if you use less compute, hopefully you're cons consuming less power if the data sensors are architected in such a way that a lower demand in compute can translate to a lower demand in power. What I would like to see and I've not yet looked closely enough to know whether this is the case, but what I'd like to see is if AWS is able to say, we spin down physical hardware, because if people are being more efficient, we don't have a rack of 50 systems 
hot all the time, regardless of how much of it's being used. If half the rack or a third of the rack is being used, the rest of it is dark because there's mm -hmm. no need for that power to be consumed, right? I would love to see that kind of correlation. At the moment, there isn't that direct link. At the moment, there doesn't seem to be a direct connection between I've reduced my costs by half to I know that I have reduced my energy consumption by half or whatever it's going to be. Because at the moment, that, that's kind of a black box. We don't really know what the, the vendors are doing in terms of idle resource. My gut tells me that that's probably not happening that much because, of, of course, you have to have capacity standing by in case you're, you, you have a burst in demand. But I'd like to think there's a way around being able to sort of sensibly scale down, have a buffer zone and scale down power usage. Yeah. I'd like well, to I see mean, that. This is new stuff, right? I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's coming from them. I, I'm very interested to see how that plays out. I think yeah. in, in my head, I'm same as your, yourself. What can we see from these reports? The one thing I'm also curious about is as they increase sustainability or literally what you're saying, if can they reduce the capacity? Mm. Will that impact the spot market? That's another good, that's a great point, right? Because spot is a very attractive opposite op opportunity to save a lot of money. It's like 90% cheaper in some cases right and all three big vendors do it they all do this their own version of preemptible compute and it is literally making money off of the systems that are otherwise sat there doing nothing right that but then that implies that there are in fact systems sat there doing nothing which is a carbon footprint problem right so does the attractiveness of spot mean that we're effectively encouraging waste by having those resources sat there spinning to provide spot is that a good thing? I mean, I get I get why the vendors are doing it because they're incentivizing usage of their systems that would otherwise be earning them absolutely nothing. But what would be nice is instead of doing that, they would say, well, we've got this compute that's sat there doing nothing and consuming energy. Let's bring it down and reduce the footprint. That would be a nice message. I know that Spot isn't hugely used by many people. There are some people who are using quite a bit of Spot, and they've got a very good architecture and sort of automation around doing that. But most most people that I've seen, most footprints that I've seen, are like two, three percent Spot, right? And they're doing it because they're doing they're dipping a toe in. Yeah, I, I can see. I see even within the company I work in, we see some teams who really leverage it, mm. and other teams it's like no way, man. Oh, yeah. hands off. I'm not going near that. If they're going to give me a two minute warning, I can't handle that. And it's like, yeah, but you know, what are you going to do if the EC2 fits? Oh, I've got automation in place to catch that. They plan for when they're going to have a hardware failure. Yeah. Well, an interruption is sort of the same thing, you know, except you can kind of predict it or well, right. you get a warning that it's going to happen. Most, most engineers say, give me a two minute warning for anything and I can react to it. And it's, it is, I think it's encouraging people to use more spot because it is a massive, massive savings. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a funny one because ultimately spot encourages the resources to sit there and you know, burn energy when they're not being used, which is, which is not sustainable. Let me plug uh, a working group here that's spinning up in the FinOps foundation because as of as of this recording date, which is March 3rd, when we're recording this, we are spinning up our sustainability SIG. It started off as a working group, but we're actually going to turn it into a, a special interest group, meaning that it's going to continue living and continue working on this. There you go. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you another question before he tries to wrap us up. Okay. You said you did your FinOps certification, FinOps practitioner certification. 
very early on. Fairly. When did you certify? I can't remember. It's just just trying to figure that one out because I I'm, I can't find the email, but uh, it was a while ago. The first online course. Yeah, it was one of the earlier online courses. Yeah, that's the thing. I've never actually taught a FinOps class in person. I've I've never taught a FinOps first class like to see the entire human being. So. That's going to be that's going to be interesting. I think when that happens again. It's going to be fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I hope that we get to do a bunch of in-person training this year. Yeah, I think it'd be great to build a community again. Definitely. The FinOps, the FinOps Scotland community, the meetup group for FinOps Scotland is, is going to start waking up. It's been a bit quiet over the last little while because mainly because yeah. COVID and all that kind of thing. We've got a whole bunch of really awesome people up here that I'm looking forward to getting together with and eating too much pizza and having chats. It's going to be good. That's, yeah, that's- I promote getting together again in person. And we need so, to build our Irish community so Noel has someone to talk to. If you're right. Irish and listening to this, join the foundation so Noel has someone to talk to and meet with. Definitely. Yeah. I feel lonely sometimes. I'm going to ask you my last question, Ben. This is a question or a segment I want to start calling. The answer can't be savings plans for RDS, right? <laughs> the answer can't be savings plans for RDS. Okay. Okay. If you could make one FinOps-related change in the cloud service providers, anyone you like, yeah. or all of them, yeah. what would it be? So this change has kind of been done by a third party already. What I'd love to see is I'd love to see some kind of a response come back that didn't just say your infrastructure's being built, but your infrastructure's being built and the hourly cost is X. I'd like to see that, right? I would just, you know, it, whether it's as part of a Jenkins pipeline that gets fed back as part of the outcome, or whether it says, you know, on the command line when somebody's writing Terraform, they hit the, the, the engineer here says, oh, I'm going to build all the things. Here we go. Right. Go hit apply. Yeah. It's all it's lots and lots of things scroll down part of the page for 10 minutes and everything's built. I'd like it to just come back with to something that says, what you've just built is going to cost this much per hour. Very good. Now, there is a third party tool right now that's starting to do that. Can't name them. But can we name them? It's a, are you talking about the open source one? There's an open yeah. source one. There's an open source one. Okay. Infra, so it's, infra, infra cost. Infra cost. That's the one. Yeah. yeah very cool. I have no <laughs> idea how accurate that is. I've not used it, tested it at all, but I love the idea. I think the idea is brilliant. And I think that the impact on having that feedback just as part of the entire cloud build experience is well really, really powerful. Here's another commercial. Yeah. If you go to the FinOps YouTube channel, Dan Berg hosted oh, yeah. Ollie from InfraCost, uh, who did a presentation on how, how that tooling worked. And I was, it, it's a really cool presentation. He, he's upfront. He's like, these are all estimates. But let me yeah. tell you if, you, know, if you know an estimate and the estimate is wildly crazy, then you know you're, you're done it wrong. So, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great first start. It's it's, it's a pretty cool presentation. So you can go. Anyone listening to that and in, intrigued by what Ben's talking about, because it is very intriguing, go check it out on our YouTube site, the New York City Meetup. We definitely have to put a link to that yeah. down below, as they say, in all the best YouTube channels. But, you know, watch me accidentally put it up above. But it's going to be <laughs> somewhere a, around the thing in the show notes. Excellent. Hey, you mentioned the banjo that's on your wall. Yeah. And you told me a really great story. It, it's your father's banjo. Is my dad. That one there is my dad's banjo. I have more than one now, but that's my dad's banjo there. How many banjos do you have? I have two now, but the reason I bought the second one was because it was pretty. 
I was in a shop to buy some strings and I saw this other one that was just ridiculously beautiful, like walnut wood on it. And it was really lovely. So I was like, okay, I need the, that's very, very lovely. I'll buy that. Which, which banjo do you play? My dad's more than, more than anything else. It sounds nicer. Would you, could you play what, some now? for us? Well, now? we need it. We need theme music for the podcast. <laughs> we need intro uh, and outro music. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't let, have to be a let, full song. Let me, let me record something so that I can have 35 different attempts of playing something that doesn't have any mistakes in it for you. I mean, I'll, I'll sing I'll prom- a lot. I'm sure you will. I'll tell you what, I will, I will record you with something. I'll re- record a little bit of Cripple Creek for you. And it's going <laughs> yeah, to be Cripple Creek. And there you go. I you can, can, I can Cri- sing that. You can sing Cripple Creek. There you go. You've read Let's my blog. Probably. I've not read your blog, but I feel like I know you too well already. <laughs> <laughs> I have a whole thing on Cripple Creek in my blog. Okay. Do you play any other instruments? I play guitar. Yes. Which are you better at, guitar or banjo? Guitar. No, it doesn't matter. It's banjo. He's our banjo but man. If we're putting uh, together the FinOps band, he's got yeah. a banjo. I mean, my my I inherited it from my dad when my dad passed away last November, and he was a professional banjo player for most of his rather bizarre and roguish life. So, I mean, if you want to hear, here's another plug for you. If you want to hear my dad play banjo, listen to the song New Shoes by Eric Bibb and the opening banjo. My dad co-wrote that song and uh, the opening banjo is my dad playing. So there you go. I did listen to it. It's a cool song. It is a cool song. It's just a good, yeah, it's a good song. Well, thank you. All right. Our thing is when we interview people, Noel, you ask them, the answer can't be uh, RDS savings plans for AWS. My thing will be, you have to play some sort of musical instrument for us. Yeah, I will. I'll record something in a bit because I've only been playing a couple months. So it'll be thousands of mistakes. So I'll get something Perfect. I don't screw up. I don't know how people play music or read music. I like to listen to music. My daughter, my oldest daughter plays trombone. She's really good at it. And she did this solo competition where she would like, she plays and then a judge would tell her like, you know, they would judge her and mm. the judge was like, well, you did a fantastic job, Maggie. You, uh, your piano was really good. And I was like, piano, she's playing trombone. It's a music Excellent. joke. It's a uh, volume of, <laughs> okay. so it's, it's, that was, that was good, Joe. Well, that was really that. good. <laughs> I'll just delete I think we should that. Leave, let, let's keep that in. That, that should definitely <laughs> stay in the silence. Should stay in. <laughs> you can almost, you can almost see the tumbleweed. <laughs> All right, Ben. I feel, I feel like after this conversation, I've, I've been in a rugby match. Sorry about that. <laughs> we've been we've been all over the place, and it's just so natural and fun. But that that's FinOps, though, right? It encompasses so much. Yeah, it does, right? I mean, considering the the breadth and depth of the different capabilities, like you've got eighteen capabilities ranging from deeply technical data ingestion and analysis through to education and empowerment, and then business strategy, decision making, and all this other. There's so many different disciplines and different directions to run in, right? To carry the ball in, if you like, that really you have to kind of embrace that. You have to understand that this isn't just one single challenge to adopt. It's lots of different disciplines. And that's reflected in the sort of multidisciplinary representation that you require for a good FinOps team to be successful. You need your backs, you need your, your wingers, you need your, your scrum players, you need all these different positions on the team and you need all these different positions in the FinOps capability in order for it to be a really rounded and successful effort. So yeah, the, the chaos does need to be embraced in order for, the, for that to be successful. And the banjo, the banjo domain. And the banjo, always banjo. Yes, don't forget <laughs> the banjo domain is a very special part of FinOps 
that really is only reached at the very final stages of maturity development. That's right. <laughs> this is so lovely. It's such a great conversation. And thank you, Ben DeMauro, for being a good to person. Thanks, chaps. Ben DeMora plucking the old banjo, playing a song called Worried Man for us. Thank you so much, Ben. And thank you, the completionist listener, listening to the entire podcast. You're not stopping halfway. You're listening to the entire thing. You are a true Finoptonaut. And you get to hear me talking over our theme song, Cheese Puffs and Caviar. Pretty soon that jazz flute's going to pipe right in. I'm going to talk right over it. And that is a great way to end the show. What an interesting conversation that was. Ben gave some really great insight into what the FinOps Certified Practitioner course is like. The conversation went all over the place. Architecture, sustainability, banjo. Maybe I'll give banjo a try. I doubt it. Let me plug FinOps X, our in-person conference coming up June 20th through 21st in Austin, Texas. Go check it out, x.finops.org to learn more about registering and let us know if you're interested in doing a presentation at the conference. Share some of your FinOps skills and your FinOps knowledge with your peers. Love to have you there. I'll attend. I will attend your session. You can count on it unless it's in conflict with somebody else who's also listening to this. We'll work it out. We'll figure things out. So thank you for listening. Thank you, Ben DeMora, for being a great guest. Thanks to Noel Crowley, my co-interviewer, and Stacy Case for kicking us off. Thank you. Can't wait to do this all over again next time on FinOps Pod. <laughs>